The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop drooling over the Project Natal video and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 452 with guest Eric Lee, recorded live Wednesday, May 26th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who taught his seven-year-old daughter to play darts... And then she kicked his ass. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in Connecticut. Richard Campbell is out there in Vancouver. He'll be back in just a minute. Uh, I just want to say thanks for listening to our loyal listeners. They tune in twice a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. We've been doing this show for coming up on seven years now. And I just want to thank you for helping making it a, a big success and sharing .NET Rocks with your friends and colleagues and fellow developers all around the world. Let's start things off with Better Know Framework. Today I'm going to talk about the system.windows.media.animation.keyspline class. Say that five times fast. Keyspline is used by a spline keyframe to define animation progress. And basically, you set two control points, two system windows point uh, objects, control point one and control point two in the XAML. So the remarks in the documentation say, to understand how a key spline works, it's helpful to understand cubic Bezier curves. A cubic Bezier curve is defined by a start point and an end point and two control points. The two coordinates in the key spline defines those two control points. When describing key splines, the start point of the Bezier curve is always zero, and the end point is always one, which is why you define only the two control points. The resulting curve specifies how an animation is interpolated during a time segment, that is, 
The curve represents the rate of change in the animation's target attribute over the time segment. To better see the relationship between animation progress and a Bezier curve, check out the key spline animation sample. And there's a great example of how to do this. And animation is just anytime you want to move anything, whether it's a picture or a font or, you know, text or whatever it is, and a media, piece of media um, from one place to another. So there's an excellent example in the documentation that I urge you to take a look at. That's system.windows.media.animation.keyspline. Uh, our guest today is Eric Lee. Eric has delivered great demos, bad demos, and demos of products that don't exist. While on stage, he has experienced applause, heckling, computer crashes, and malfunctioning keyboards, and had the chance to deliver one really good joke about NASCAR. In 2008, after eight years at Microsoft, where he built demos for executives like Steve Ballmer, Eric Rudder, and Soma, Soma Segar, Eric Lee founded Wonder Effect, and that's Affect, A-F-F-E-C-T. He likes to think of his fledgling company as the world's first software special effects company. In the same way that Hollywood movies use visual special effects to tell their story, Wonder Affect uses special techniques to help companies tell engaging and convincing stories with their software. They call their approach to build demos the Wonder Method. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's a, that's a nice little niche, and, and a, you know, it's not everybody that can do that. You have to be artistic, and you have to know software, and, you know, you have to sort of know business at the same time. That's a, that's, I, I can't imagine it's got to be that easy. Well, maybe it's easy for you. You know, it's a fun combination. I don't know if it's easy, but it's, it's something I enjoy quite a bit, so, <laughs> which is all you can ask for, I suppose. So what's the joke about NASCAR? Oh, well, you know, I've been told it's actually not that great. <laughs> you had to, to be but... <laughs> Just because it's in a bio. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I, the, the feedback that I've gotten has not been as stellar as I'd hoped. But at the time, it was okay. It was, it was to the effect of many people go to NASCAR races or view NASCAR races not, not for the speed and the power, but it's for the crashes. Right. Very, very oh. much like software demos. I see. <laughs> very much like <laughs> software demos. Uh, <laughs> so, well, and, and I mean, all yeah. of us here have been through this experience of our demos tank. Also, just building demos is an art form all by itself. I remember when yeah. uh, I remember when they were demoing early versions of Windows NT, and they said right up front, they said, this is alpha, and any time that it crashes, somebody gets a T-shirt. And they had like a T-shirt uh. cannon, right? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so they just turned it into a, you know, spectacle. That is kind of nice, actually. That's not a bad way to do it. So are you talking about um, uh, WPF effects, Silverlight effects, uh, animation, 3D, multimedia, video? What are, you, what are you talking about in general when you mean, you know, uh, things have undergone the wonder method? You know, it could be any of the above. And, you know, not all of our demos are, um, you know, need a lot of flash in terms of media and Silverlight and, and WPF. But it's really, you know, helping customers tell that story. You know, what was hard is now easy or what was expensive is now cheaper. Um, you know, that sort of thing. So just being able to find that story um, within their technology is, is, is really what we specialize in. And sometimes, you know, sometimes that means building, you know, a lot of media, a lot of video, a lot of, you know, WPF style sorts of things. But other times it just means, you know, showing people a very simple, you know, before and after. 
sort of thing. Mm. Um, you know, I had a colleague, uh, well, actually, she was a speaker coach of mine, and she used to work on the IIS team. And um, it was the simplest, you know, one of the demos that she did in one of her highest rated talks, it was the simplest thing. It was just showing um, the IIS recovery. So, you know, one second you see the service running, then, you know, she crashed it, you know, three seconds later it comes back up. And, you know, you just, it's just doing that in task manager. I mean, super, super simple. But it really resonated with the audience because these were system administrators who, you know, before this feature, they would have to, you know, you know, get up in the middle of the night and remote desktop into the machine and restart the, you know, restart the process and right. you know, get a pager, et cetera. So even though it was the simplest thing, it really, really resonated with them. So it's really about finding the story to tell and, and being an effective storyteller with your demo. Exactly. Not just exactly, necessarily yeah. um, the effects. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Demos for Steve Ballmer, such as? You know, the Visual Studio 2005, the team system launch. That was, uh, that was one of the last ones um, that I did at Microsoft. So we, um, we did that one. Then we went overseas. Um, and then, and then, I believe in the company. Um, so that was fun. That was the, the big, you know, Visual Studio team system. 2005 and SQL Server uh, 2005 launch. So that was uh, where that the, was that where you had set up a, a sort of a team, a work group with TFS, and and you told the. I think I remember seeing this, and you yeah, and you sort yeah, of yeah. told the story of a uh, of tracking a bug and and a, and you went through a whole process of. Is that the one that you're talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was uh, Prashant was the speaker um, in San Francisco, and then I I did that um, in uh, where did I go? I went to South Africa. And uh, I went tomorrow, so I can't remember now. But um, but yeah, then, then after the the main launch in San Francisco, we went um, on our little worldwide tour there. Yeah, I thought that was a great demo. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and I thought, what better demo can you do than actually going through the process of using this product that nobody had seen before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It um, it seemed to work out really well. The I, I think the story was pretty good. It was um, it was a funny demo because uh, Prashant was the speaker and I was the backup. In the back, so I was shadowing all of his actions in the back. Um, and right at the very beginning, I almost switched them to the backup because we saw a little problem. I didn't, and then right at the very end, um, I ended up switching them because we we uh, we had a problem. But um, I think from the audience, the people that we talked to, because um, I went out to the audience afterwards to you know ask a couple of people, hey, you know, what you think, et cetera, and no one mentioned that they saw like a screen flicker or anything. So. I think we got away with one. There. So you guys literally ran a backup rig, and you were doing the demo step by step along in sync with him. Yeah, yeah. In case something <laughs> went wrong. Yeah, it's really funny. You know, um, and the funny thing is that you know I've done you know dozens of demos on stage, and and you know I don't really get nervous. I kind of enjoy it. But in the backup, I was really nervous. I don't know why. You know, just um, just following him along, I was really nervous for some reason. But uh, but yeah, I shadowed him the whole way, and right at the very beginning, we almost switched, and then right at the end, um, I did switch, uh, uh, switch him over. Huh? Does he know that you switch over? You know, one thing that we didn't see in our practices. Um, normally, he wouldn't because I would move, I, I would be placing the mouse just about where he has his mouse, so he would just pick up from there. Um, but one thing that we saw on stage, and Prashant was really good about this is that um, when I switched them, his mouse and keyboard went dead. So he didn't have any, he didn't have any more control. It was fine in the, in the demo because when I switched them, he didn't have any more interactions to do. Right. So he, he was just moving his, his hands um, on stage as though he were you know, working the mouse and whatnot, um, and no one noticed. But, um, so it was, a, it was a fortunate switch. Huh. 
This is a, yeah, it's an amazing thing to consider when you talk about the big Microsoft keynotes. Is this a fairly normal thing that they run these shadow systems? Like, that's just a lot of infrastructure. You know, it is a lot of infrastructure. It's not, um, it was something we always did when we had um, an executive speaker. Um, It wasn't something, it was kind of a luxury we didn't always have a chance to do because, um, especially, you know, for, you know, um, uh, you know, as budget you know was impacting and whatnot, we couldn't send as many people to to all the shows. So sometimes you just wouldn't have a backup. Um, so you just have to do what you could. Um, but you know, not all groups do that because you know, like like you do see. I remember like one of the Windows Live launch demos. Um, you know, something went wrong, and obviously they didn't have a backup and whatnot. So um, we always did that in developer division, but I don't think I don't think that was a consistent thing um, at Microsoft. But uh, it's a tricky bit of infrastructure to set up uh, beforehand. Well, and I, of course, everyone remembers the great Windows 95 blue screen with Bill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that must have set the tone. Were you with Microsoft then, or that's, that's before your time? That was before my time. I do remember hearing about that, but that was before my time. I joined in 98. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, that has got to have sort of been uh, after that, sort of the fallout of how do we avoid this happening again. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, but it's surprising because um, you still see it happen. I mean, with the, was it the Windows Home or, or Media Center, where he was on with, was it with Jay Leno or David Letterman? He was trying to work the remote. Right. And it, it wasn't working. Um, so I'm really kind of surprised that they didn't do, they didn't, they didn't do a backup or anything like that there. Well, and I, yeah, and I'm astonished that, and we've all done this. You practice, you practice, you practice in the speaker's room. Maybe you do a check, check beforehand, but I would think with the big keynotes, they do an all up, you know, plugs out kind of test before they go ahead. But it, oh, it, yeah. That, yeah. But, and yet we still get failures. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've been doing since, I didn't really do it at Microsoft because it, it, it didn't occur to me until after I left, is that I tell all my clients now, or I, I help them walk through it, um, I have them do a sit test um, before the before the demo. So um, I have them get their machine set up just like they're going to demo, and then we just leave it alone for a couple of hours. Oh, I see. And then we come back to it and, and work it again. Because one of the things I noticed, uh, well, it, you know, it happened to me while I was at Microsoft. I didn't really realize what it was until I left. But uh, one of the things is that, you know, for these demos, typically you set it up very early in the morning, you know, six or seven in the morning. Right. And then you leave it, you have no access to the machine until it's t- your time to speak at like, you know, 10 or 9.30 or whenever you happen to be in that speech. Um, and sometimes when that happens, you know, just the machine sitting there, something gets cached or something gets swapped out, et right. cetera, and it kind of throws things off. So I always have people go through a sit test nowadays. Have you um, ever done a Camtasia and faked it like you were actually doing it? You know, like a screen video? No, I haven't done that on stage. I haven't. Do you know um, people who've done that? I have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, I know what you're thinking about it, but what do you think? You think that's, you think that's value? You know, I mean, it's obviously pulling the wool over the audience's eyes, but, you know, when you want zero tolerance for failure, that's always an option, I suppose, right? That's true. That's true. You know, I, I kind of... Um, I kind of enjoy the, you know, the the live, you know, the little bit of pressure, the little bit of liveness um, in, in doing it on stage. I feel like, you know, I feel like the, the you know, the, the times I've done the video um, is mostly been in training. Yeah. You know, if I'm training a group of people, I say, okay, well, let's watch this video, and you know, this is what we'll do. Um, so I just want to be clear about that. Um, I don't like doing the video on stage and not telling people. 
Um, so I feel like, you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, investment the audience makes. It's lip syncing. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, if they ever called you on it, like if, I don't know, you know, you got a media player error or something yeah. like that. <laughs> oh. But isn't this just like lip syncing, right? Did they, it, at the, yeah. at the Grammys? Right. You right. know, you're cheating. Right. Let's exactly. face it. You are cheating. You are cheating. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, you know, with doing those things, you have to be a little careful because it's very hard to predict the resolution of the projector that you'll project on. All right. Um, you know, beforehand. So sometimes, you know, your video might look great on the desktop, but then you fire it up um, on stage, and it doesn't look so good. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of like the, you know, I, I kind of like the theater, <laughs> you know, if you will, of, yeah. of doing it live. So, yeah, that's definitely what people expected. It's why they came, and they, you know, that's yeah. part of the challenge of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think for the most part, if something goes wrong, you know, the audience <laughs> generally understands. At least they can say, okay, well. You know, we must have been seeing something very, you know, very cutting edge if it didn't quite work or et cetera. At least, you know, something to talk about and whatnot. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, Web UI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich AJAX and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So I remember doing a demo um, in 2000, 2001, maybe, or 2000. But it was the year that they tried to relabel and rebrand all the server products with a .NET oh, moniker. Right. So it was right. after .NET had come out, and it was at a Dev Days. And I remember, because being a regional director, that was our job, to do the demos at Dev Days, right? And to oh, do sure, the... yeah. So they shipped me a crate full of PCs. That with servers <laughs> right. and stuff and a and a script to go through, uh, you know, with BizTalk and SQL Server and all oh, this stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you remember that? And I was really impressed by the thoroughness that these guys, and they had like 800 numbers that you could, you know, call if you got stuck and stuff. And, and they had set this stuff up so nicely. And I remember pulling it off and just being amazed that – that I that it that it worked. Wasn't that the original role of the regional directors? That whole yeah. staging dev days in yeah. your re- local region. We directed the dev days event in our region. Yep. And that 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 I was just thinking about the demo itself. Just like what a what an accomplishment that is to to have like several server machines and stuff all hooked up in a network and given and shipping it out in a big crate to a regional director. And here's these instructions and. You know, and and the and the, the the things that you need to show, and the in the rough script that you're gonna talk, uh, and the fact that it all worked was just like wow. These guys really have their stuff together. 
because it was complex it stuff. Reproducible. Yeah, yeah, it's um, being able to get something reproducible like that. You know, where you can ship it out and have right. someone pick it up and do it. Um, just as good is uh, is definitely a challenge. Definitely, it's pretty cool. You know, irrespective of our of our keynote sort of speeches and things like that, I find just making good samples, good explain, you know, and stuff that actually shows the problem. Of course, I'm doing a lot of scaling talks these days, so creating rich enough data that it feels real, but it's not so complicated that nobody can understand it. Right. And, oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting balance. You you just don't you can't just take your customer app and and show it on a stage. That that's not right. But and it's probably too complicated. But you can't make it. You know how many demos have we seen where they had a hundred records in the database? Yeah, right. And you really just invalidate the results. The data is not real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Where do you get your? You know, when you do this, Eric, where do you get your mm-hmm. data from? Like, how do you do that? You know, um, a variety of sources. There's actually a lot of really good open source data that's out there, or I guess public domain data that's out there. Um, anything from like fictionalized names to kind of U.S. Census data, um, economic data. You know, actually, I use Amazon data sets quite a bit. Amazon, uh, like it, book names. Yeah, you know, it's no, you know, it's the funniest thing. So Amazon has a side of their business um, that is, is is developer oriented. So a lot of the things that they use to build Amazon.com, they're exposing. Um, to developers, so you know the commerce stuff, their ability to run servers, queuing, uh, data storage, and whatnot. Um, kind of as an offshoot of all of that, is they've collected all these public data sets, so stuff like the genome data, uh, U.S. Census data, economic right. data, etc. And they've made that accessible to you in kind of an easy way if you use their services. So um, I, I end up grabbing this stuff quite a bit. You know, like I'll grab you know, some section of census data to, you know, for doing, you know, database on people, that sort of thing. So right. I ended up getting that quite a bit. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's kind of a variety of different ways. Um, one of the things sometimes I've done, um, you know, one of the challenges can be coming up with, like, you know, if I'm doing a development tool, like bug names and stuff like that, or defect, you know, defect titles and whatnot, um, there's, a, there's a, a subset of those Amazon services called Mechanical Turk, where you can pay someone a very small amount of money to do, you know, a, a, a small task. So sometimes I'll actually have people, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, pretend you're using a banking app and, you know, write down 500 problems you might have sort of thing. Mm. So uh, mm. sometimes I'll have them do that. And, and you know, if you, if you send that out to four or five or, or six people, you know, um, you can get a pretty good list of realistic sounding stuff. Wow. That's an issue. Yeah, creative solution is a problem, and obviously other people are dealing with this issue. So there's stuff out there to solve it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you know, I don't have it perfected. You know, I, I, I'm uh, I'm still always looking for for good stuff, um, particularly things like defect titles and you know sample project plans and stuff like that. That's that's always tricky to find. But those are those are a couple of the ways I've done it. Yeah, developer data is an interesting problem because of course we yeah. in, in our real <laughs> projects we have. Unfortunately, thousands of bugs. So we've got yeah. reams and reams of data, but fabricating those—that's a whole other can of worms. That's true. Yeah, getting uh, the the real ones are easy to find. Getting the the real sounding fake ones can be a little bit uh, <laughs> yeah, much harder. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, did you ever participate in any of the crazy sample sets that, that Microsoft uses, like uh, AdventureWorks, Fitch and Mother, like those things? You know, um, AdventureWorks a little bit. You know, we, um, I think more so we kind of took the name AdventureWorks. I know we took one of their samples and we, um, we kind of cored it out. 
So this was something that we did that was that was really common for for a lot of demos. Um, so Benchworks being that uh, that e-commerce site where you buy the sporting goods and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Um, for a lot of the team system stuff, you know, most of those demos were, you know, version control related or or you know bugs that we're tracking or modeling, etc. So we didn't need the all, all the back end and all the all the actual application data or uh, sorry, all the application code. Um, so what we did with that application is that we um, we stripped it all out. So it was really just more of a facade. And then we just had a couple of places where we had code where we wanted to demonstrate, like code coverage, or you know, um, or some pro- uh, profiling or whatnot. The rest of the app was actually just a facade. Um, so, so I didn't do any of the the building of Adventureworks. I, <laughs> I guess I did more of the taking apart um, in some cases. Yeah, and of course you, you know, and you get the same issue. Like lots of folks complain about the database design. I'm sorry, I'm putting my database hat out here. Complain about the database design of Adventureworks is just so complex that it's not a good demo. Yeah. Do you have some tips for our listeners who might be doing demos at user groups or at uh, even in their own companies? Um, I mean, we have presentation tips that we go over again and again on the show oh, yeah. about fonts and things, but but specifically about demos. Do you have any? you know, experiential tips that you could share? Yeah, definitely. You know, I've got a couple of them written up on my blog, um, just in terms of like archetypes for demos and stuff like that. But um, I always, you know, in terms of, in terms of just general tips, I always say that, you know, applications rarely demo well. You know, I always think of like the analogy of, if you think of um, like a movie set, you know, or a TV, you know, uh, studio set, when you see the houses, they're not real houses. They're just facades, you know. And the one room that you need to go into is actually a real room. The rest of it is just fake. Um, and, and there's a number of reasons why they do that. You know, it it um it, it makes it easier to film. It makes it a little cheaper to build, etc. Um, and the same, I think, is true for demos and applications. Where, you know, to get a full running application, you know, it um. There's some, you know, there, there's some difficulties with that. It takes, you know, it takes longer to build and run. It takes longer to run. It takes more memory, um, and it's not as easy to kind of delve into different parts of that application. So I always think that, you know, if you're demoing an application, um, think about, you know, kind of shelling parts of it out so that, you know, parts are a facade and it just shows what it is that you want to show. Um, and I think, you know, this is um, as much a presentation tip as anything else is that. You know, your audience, you know, any audience, when they're seeing something on stage, uh, when they're, you know, they're watching it and they're, li- and they're listening to it, it's hard to, to um, absorb that much, you know. So I would be wary of not, um, not trying to um, show the audience too much so that they don't, you know, that it washes over them. Just pick the few, you know, key points that you want to pick, that you want to show, and, um, and make sure you hammer away at those and make sure those are really clear. Um, and then, you know, more often times than not, your audience actually comes away with more than if you try to just, you know, motor mouth your way through it sort of thing. Well, and I think that as developers who are presenting, we tend towards this belief. And, you know, it's interesting to describe the way you describe the house where one room needs to be finished. And we presume that we only do it that way because it's cheaper. That in yeah. an ideal <laughs> world, if we didn't care about cost or time, we'd build the whole thing because that would naturally be better. I'll tell you one thing that got me um, with a demo that I can see happening to a lot of people is 
you do your demos in the speaker's lounge or wherever it is that you're preparing, and you usually are plugged into the network and usually have an IP address. When you get up on stage and there's no wireless and there's no internet, you don't have an IP address. And if any of your demos require that you do, which is a lot of them... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh you're going to you you might completely crash. I I crashed and burned doing a demo of uh at a launch. It was a VS2005 or 2008 launch maybe even in Boston where I did a demo of um click once. Oh, and right, right. and the demo was going great and it was so I told this story before. You remember this Richard? Yes. I it was so funny. I was so cocky. I got cuz I said Raise your hand if you've ever seen a demo of Click Once and a bunch of people put their hands up. And I said, now, raise, keep your hand up if it worked. Because <laughs> I had seen demos of Click Once crash and burn. And guess why? So what happened to me? Crashed and burned. Yeah. Failed, nothing like a failed internet connection. It was so hard. The gods of vengeance and irony were smacking me down for tempting yeah. them like that, you know. That, that always tends to happen. That always tends to happen. So I the answer is to uh, so the answer is to install the Microsoft Loopback adapter. Exactly. Yeah. And give yourself yeah. an IP address. That's yeah. a that's a regular. You got to do that as uh, adding hardware. You add hardware right. and you add a network card and and it's just the Microsoft Loopback adapter and it's nothing yeah. but a gives you a one twenty seven zero zero one and it gives you TCP IP without connectivity. Right, that's that. Um, that works really well. I use a host file quite a bit if I want yeah. to go out to what looks like a you know www.microsoft.com or something. Ah, um, yes. I'll just do it in my host file and redirect to something local. Yep, that works. Do you did you ever get into the problem where y- you guys are all plugged into CorpNet, you know the the Microsoft network, and um, and not everybody has that everywhere. Do you, right. Do, when you yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. It, um, you know, it did. Um, I don't remember any specific cases where that that was a huge problem. You know, most of the times, while we weren't on CorpNet, at least our credentials were cached, so we could at least log in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, right. So that wasn't too bad. You know, um, the cases where um, where it, it tended to be problematic was when we did things with SharePoint. You know, SharePoint is very particular about how it authenticates and whatnot. Um, but towards the end of my time at Microsoft and, 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 and since I've been out, um, I rarely demo SharePoint live. I, um, I have a, a fake installations of SharePoint. So I've downloaded all the styles and whatnot. So, um, I'm able to replicate like locally on a web server, um, whatever I want to show on SharePoint. And, and, mm-hmm. and I tend to, it still tells the story. It just makes it a little bit easier to work with sometimes. Hmm. Um, so I, I've always wrestled with SharePoint for some reason. Yeah. And a lot of people tend to do SharePoint demos in virtual machines. Just because yeah. it's easier to deal with, and but that of course slows things down. And sure, yeah, yeah. Oh, it gives us an excuse to buy really big laptops. <laughs> but yeah. I have another solution <laughs> to that problem now. What's that? The carrying the miniature PCs, my own little data center in the rollaway bag. Yeah, oh, yeah. those PCs yeah, yeah, are yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah, and those I, shuttle PCs are great. Yeah, they they're six inches by six inches by an inch and a half. I can get four of them in a rollaway bag. I've named the rollaway bag secondary inspection because that's what the TSA calls it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they love that bag. Love it. Yeah, that's not bad. Four of them is not bad. Well, yeah, you got four servers. You can do what you want. Right? What do you want to yeah. show? So yeah, and I could see building a building into a bag like an eight machine one, which may be a little excessive, but that never stopped me before. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, it um being able to get to um being able to run on real hardware definitely helps. It, it always helps your performance. Um, well, and such as performance is like when I'm doing demonstrations of how websites fail under load. You need bare metal for right. that. It just doesn't make yeah. any sense in a VM. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely true. But and I'm always staggered. I've been on the stage at some of these keynote speeches at Microsoft. The sheer amount of hardware, the number of machines they've got, like it's just tons and tons of gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot that gets shipped over. Um, for a lot of these keynote demos, it, it's it's really amazing. Um, it's just tons and tons of stuff. There's a separate machine for uh, for the slides and a separate machine for your sort of front end, and they've got a server. And they didn't – it's not like they went to the miniature PCs like I did. They're shipping these tower yeah. machines for everything. <laughs> wow, it's the full-on racks and whatnot. Did you ever poke around with uh, – at TechEd, they tried this a couple of times, and I don't know that it ever went anywhere, but the, the sort of centralized massive VM server, so everybody would just load their VMs there rather than trying to run them locally in each of the rooms? yeah. Yeah, I remember we tried that. It uh, just didn't work out that well. You know, it um, it was always, I know, I mean, and part of it was, you know, I, um, just thinking back to the times I've tried it, part of it was my fault, too. You know, um, a lot of times I wouldn't have that image, you know, perfectly, you know, stabilized until just before the show. So it was hard to go around and try to upload it, um, you know, last second sort of thing. Um, and they're so big that, you know, it uh, it takes a while, um, and then there was also the performance. It, the, the performance never seemed to um, to really work out that well. So, yeah, it, yeah, and I think it's because <laughs> VMs actually take a lot of tuning. There's no toys about that. But in yeah. the end, the biggest issue is it's just not easy to haul around 30 gigs. Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. They're just that's too big. Sure. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of good ways to do it. You know, all the virtualization that I do um, in that respect now. Um, I don't do a lot of scaling demos, but the the time or two that I've done that, um, I've been using Amazon's EC2 infrastructure to do that with. Because um, you can pick kind of your machine archetype, a big one, a small one, et cetera. Right. Um, and they're all Internet accessible. So, so you know, typically I can get them to do what I need, um, to hit a site or something like that. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. So tell us about this um, Windows Forms uh, toolkit that you've been working on. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell us about it. Well, you know it um it was kind of um, it was kind of conceived um, to kind of solve some problems that we were having. You know, um, probably like a lot of developers. You know, I I was I, I kind of grew up doing you know first you know the Charles Petzold you know programming Windows ninety five sort of thing so Win thirty two. And then moved pretty quickly to MFC and was okay there. Um, then when you know Windows Forms came out, um, you know worked there too. And you know, in a lot of cases, you were kind of just doing the same things. Um, so I mean, you know, we had a lot of, or I had a lot of, you know, um, experience or intellectual property built on those platforms. And you know, WPF was such a big jump. You know, the it was obvious what the benefits were. You know, the apps look great. 
you know, it's nice to have that isolation. So if you work with a designer, it makes it much easier. Um, you know, there's some interesting controls there and whatnot. But it's just the, the leap was so great between, um, you know, Windows Forms to WPF that there was almost just kind of a, just a hesitation. <laughs> you know, it was just, right. there's just so much to WPF. It was just like, it's too intimidating to try. You know, I, I don't even know what this stuff looks like sort of thing. So then, um, but then if you kind of break the problem down, like a friend of mine always uh, tells me, um, you know, you should, you should eat your elephant one bite at a time. And um, when you look at just individual elements of WPF compared to Windows Forms, it's not that, you know, it's not that bad. It's, you know, there, there's some correlation that you can draw between those two. So we kind of started talking about those correlations. And then, you know, um, I, I'm always leery of, you know, writing conversion tools because I always find that, you know, it's very hard to convert from one thing to another and, and hit every single case, you know, have it work perfectly. Yeah. Um, so I was like, well, you know, maybe there's some kind of script that we can write or some kind of script, some kind of program where we can do some basic translation, but, you know, not obviously, not obviously not set it up in such a way to say that, it's, you know, it's a all in one wonder, um, conversion tool. Um, so, you know, essentially it's a giant switch statement. You know, we look at what you have in Windows Forms from the designer perspective and we try to translate that over into WPS. Um, I think it'll work, you know, for, for, for a good amount or a decent amount of, you know, realistic types of code. But I think it's just as important from an educational perspective to say, okay, well, you know, this is how I'm used to doing it in, in Windows Forms. Yeah. You know, let me run this thing and let me see what it looks like in WPS. And, you know, obviously a lot of that you can discern from reading the documentation, but, you know, like I, I you know, I'm one of those guys, I don't really read a lot of documentation. And I think, you know, there's probably some people like that. Uh, that are the same way. So it's kind of nice to see it in the code. Okay, well, you know, this is how I set up my button in Windows Forms, and this is how it looks like in WPF. You know, maybe we can start to take, you know, some bites out of that elephant, and then all of a sudden WPF hopefully won't be quite as intimidating um, as it certainly seemed to be for me, and I think, you know, for for some other developers, um, they might feel the same way. Well, and I wouldn't want to say this in a negative way, but I think about how many people taught themselves SQL using the access query by example tool. Yeah. Where they sort of dragged and dropped their bits at the table and connected the lines up. Then they looked at the query, and that's how they learned to write a join and learned to write a where clause and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I think that's very common. I mean... You know, I mean, with computers, you know, you can do trial and error. You know, you're not going to break anything. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think that's a very valid way to learn. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully this this tool becomes becomes kind of along that, you know, follows along the same sort of path. Absolutely. So would, the other, of course, angle of this is that it's really, if you're just migrating, are you just regenerating that sort of battleship gray form that we built with WinForbs into WPF? Oh yeah, you know, um, one of the things that we've been able to take advantage of, and and I think this kind of you know starts to scratch the surface of that WPF power is that um, we pull in those WPF themes. So in the project that we generate, um, one of the options that we set up is like, do you want to pick a theme? Um, and the, you know, there's a there's a code project project that, um, or sorry, Codeplex project that has a has a you know great you know thirty or or twenty or thirty of these different themes that you know so your app could look like expression or it can look like, you know, Vista, et cetera. Um so you could pick one of those themes. So then without, you know, any extra code, um your app looks different. You know, you can make it look like expression, make it look like Vista and has all of a sudden a different sort of look. 
Um, and I think, well, hopefully, that'll subtly introduce people to using these resource dictionaries so they can say, okay, well, my whole app, you know, has this, you know, kind of light, you know, shiny look. Well, let me start to play with, you know, individual elements inside this resource dictionary, you know, to kind of tweak the look that I want. So, yeah, so, so definitely um, the thing that we convert, you know, if you don't pick a theme, it'll just be Battleship Gray, just like, you know, you're used to, which, you know, is, is marginal, marginally valuable. Um, but if you pick a theme, then all of a sudden, hey, it, it looks very different. And none of the code really had to change, you know. Well, now that there's new tooling in Visual Studio 2010, that sort of, um, how, how far do you think that goes to uh, bridge, you know, bridge that gap between what we know about Windows Forms and WPF? Does it make the experience of designing Silverlight and WPF applications that much easier? What do you think about it? I think so. I think so. You know, it um, it definitely is a step. Um, a step forward. You know, the WPF slash Silverlight tools in, in 2008 just weren't that great. Um, but it looks very promising in 2010. You know, I'm still playing with it myself, but it definitely looks like it's, you know, it's taking a couple steps forward. And, you know, we saw the same thing, you know, with Win32 and MSD and stuff like that. It took a couple of releases before they really got those designers down pat. Right. So I'm sure we'll see the same thing with, uh, uh, with WPF and whatnot. Well, I think the WPF is, I mean, it's been longer, right? It's, it's been quite a while oh, yeah. with WPF out to get That's good true. tooling. We're still struggling with it. That's true. That's true. You know, um, you know, that, that's a really good point. I, I, um, I kind of speak of WPF like it's this new technology, but it's been out there for a couple of years. So no, that's, that's absolutely true. I think, um, it's just, you know, it is such a big jump over, um, you know, the way that we used to do things that, it, um, I, you know, I, it's probably, it's just been a struggle for everybody. You know, I think it's, it's changed the way, you know, or it demands that you learn things a different way and it demands that you build the tools in a different way. And I think, you know, the, the time it's taken Microsoft is kind of indicative of, of that learning curve, you know? Well, if it's hard for them, it must be hard for us then. Right? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I would think so. So where are you at with WF to WPF? Oh yeah, we're um we're coming along. So we have Visual Basic support. That was a big thing that we wanted to do. Um we are working on menus. Um so that's a little bit challenging. We probably I think we hit a little bit of um a roadblock with data grids. You know, the grids just work really differently between Windows Forms and, and WPF. So I think we'll probably hold there um you know for the next little while. Uh, um so we kinda held there, try to get the VB support in, get the menu support in. Um and we're working on getting it working inside of Visual Studio, so it works as an extension. Okay. Um, yeah, just uh, yeah, just just kind of working through there. Uh, and I mean, at the point we're recording this, we you, ha- you haven't got a release on Coplex yet, right? The project's there. Yeah, the project is there, and the code is there. Oh, it is there. Okay. Um, w- yeah. is w- so WF to WPF Coplex. You just haven't done the uh, a download option yet. You've just the the core right. code base is available. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know that's that's a good point. I wonder. Um, do you think people want to see it as just a pure download as well, or do you think they'll just want to see the code? Um, I didn't intentionally not put a download. There, come to think of it, I just um, I thought people would be more interested in the code, but there's no reason not to put both. Yeah, I think there's the issue here sure. is that you know when you go to the website, you see no current default release. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so, that's yeah, easy enough maybe, to fix. Yeah. Yeah, easy enough to fix. And it, it, but it's important that you can actually get the code base, run this on your forms, and see what you get. Right. 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 Definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah, let me do that today. Yeah, I'll um, I'll get a release up there. Well, um, so the we, by the time folks are listening to the show, there will be a, a default download. What kinds yeah. of sample <laughs> applications do you have in the in the uh, in the tool that sh- that show you know the kinds of applications that you can convert over? Yeah, we've got a couple. You know, um, mainly they're um, mainly they're more tactical than anything else in the sense that you know. We, you know, we want to make sure that we're we're carrying over the style, the sizes, the positioning, and stuff like that. So you'll see kind of some goofy looking samples of like you know big square buttons and you know offset, you know, and you know from a corner and stuff like that. Because we're just trying to make sure that we're um, you know translating that stuff over. Um, I'll kind of get a more realistic sample in there, um, probably along with this next release. And you know, obviously, the data grids have been a challenge, but the, uh, the sort of the other basic controls are all they just work. You know, it's it, it um they work with translation. You know, WPF, you know, um changed a lot of different, you know, even property names, you know, things like right. you know, text became content, um, you know, that sort of thing. So just a lot of that types of translation. You can almost imagine kind of like a it's almost like a BizTalk style XML mapper, you know, mapping properties over. Um so the yeah, the other controls have mainly been well, just the, the data can the data grid has been a real challenge. Um, and I'm, I'm not a whole. I'm not sure there's a whole lot more we can do actually um, with that from a from an you know programmatic perspective. Um, I think that might be one where, where we just, you know developers just have to go in there and ham code that stuff. So how does the tool react when it doesn't know what to do with the control? Ah, that's a good one. Yeah, it'll. It, it puts basically a blank. <laughs> so, with the, you know, with the data grid, that's been the biggest one. Um, we'll put a blank grid there and a comment that says, you know, sorry. <laughs> you know, sorry. We, we just didn't know what to do. Sorry. Yeah. 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 We want to make sure it still compiles. That's a big thing. You know, we want, right. we don't want to generate something that doesn't build anymore. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, there's just some, there's, you know, the, the, the data grid is the most obvious example that comes to mind, but there's just a couple of cases where we can't do it. Um, and we'll try to generate comments as best we can for stuff like, hey, you know, this property doesn't doesn't have an, you know, um, a matching one to WPS. So there's there was anything we could do about it. Well, what about data binding? Um, that's fundamentally different in WPF. Yeah, that I mean, that goes along with the same thing. So data binding, uh, data binding, and data grids. Um, I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot we can do there. Um, it's just so different that. Um, yeah, that might be that might right. be one we have to leave alone. So it's really for UI elements that we're we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, you know it. Um, and this is the whole thing with any kind of conversion utility is that it's very tempting to try and you know programmatically do all of that stuff. But you know, people, you know, you could easily build a company that does just that. You know, and and sure. then arguably, you know, not not even that well. <laughs> you know, you then, then you need a consulting arm in that company to, you know, to to make it work completely completely right and, and 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 that wasn't how we scoped this particular project you know um I wanted to keep this you know as open source it'll be a community resource um you know all the source all the source code will be public um and hopefully you know hopefully people take that source code and you know I'm sure we didn't do everything right and you know modify it and resubmit changes and stuff like that so Hopefully that'll be something that grows. So I would imagine using this more as a learning tool to say, all right, I have this form, you know, what it, what could it look like? And, you know, where do I start at WPF? Yeah. Maybe, you know, that's yeah. that's maybe more what you should see this as. But definitely I lowering so. the bar to, you know, convincing your boss it's worth moving to WPF, taking a, taking a, some win form pay, uh, you know, window, converting to WPF and then applying the styles to it and saying, look, I, you know, did this pretty quickly. You know, this is what it could look like. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in the same sense, like, you know, like we're talking about you know, developers using, you know, access to learn SQL from, for uh, SQL Server. In a lot of ways, you can kind of, you know, you can graphically play with this tool and, um, and learn WPF in, you know, sort of similar way. I get that. Yeah. That's, it's, it's interesting. But I, you know, I think about the, that the, the way that WPF manages state page to page, that sort of effect. Sorry, I'm using web terms. I can't help it these sure. days. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is not the same. I re- just remember Billy Hollis talking about this quite extensively that it's just not that easy. You're just not going to be able to convert that stuff easily. Right. Yeah. WPF does have a very different kind of paging, um, metaphor and, yeah, that's um, that's a that's an interesting thing, you know. It um, and I you know, and you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure what the right answer there there is. I mean, you know, th- there's a lot of things that we do with you know dialog boxes and subforms and stuff like that in, in applications today that you can change, you know, that you can use paging in WPF a little bit more for. Um, and you know, I think at that level, that is probably a Hey, we're moving to WPF. Maybe it's time to revisit some of the user experience, anyways. You know what I mean? And I don't think that's something that um, that you can necessarily convert. No, it's not something that you'd even want to necessarily automatically convert. I think you'd want to, you know, sit down, you know, and sit down and kind of storyboard your app a little bit more um, to see where see where see what that user interaction looks like again. Hey, so let's get back to demos for a minute. What? Tell yeah. me about your biggest moment of freakout on stage. Oh, biggest moment of freakout. Um, I've, I've, uh, you know, uh, I've told you my, I mean, my <laughs> horrible experience with that. Uh. <laughs> sure. Um, two of them come to mind. Well, you know, the 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 one probably uh, is more so. Is that a tech ed? Um, I actually forget which tech ed it was now. Um, I know it was tech ed US, but we were demoing um, uh, Visual Studio Team System, and this was one of the you know, four-person or five-person type of demos where it kind of switches from one person to another. Um, and it was it was kind of rushed getting all the setup going. And I remember I was using a virtual machine to demo everything. So I would just full-screen the virtual machine demo in there, and that was that was my part of it. Um, and one of the one of the bugs in that virtual machine, for whatever reason, is that if you ever change the screen resolution, um, the keyboard would stop working. So you'd have to reboot. You know, you'd have to kill the the, the virtual machine and start it up again for whatever reason. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why. Um, but for the most part, that was fine. If, if you knew that, you know, it was easy enough. Um, but we got on stage. You know, I full screened it to make sure it worked. But then right before we were supposed to talk, one of the technicians were like, "Well, we have to switch the resolution." So I'm like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll just switch the resolution. Hopefully, it works." <laughs> um, but then there's no, there's no way to. You know, there wasn't time to reboot it. So I was like, "Okay, well, let's just, let's just see what happens." <laughs> you know. So it came to my turn, and I realized my keyboard wasn't working. So I was like, man, uh, man, oh, that, man. You know, that, that makes things really difficult because there's a few things I have to type. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, let's see what we do. And then um, a colleague of mine, AJ, was in the front row, and he's like, he whispered to me. He goes, use Notepad. So I was like, oh, yeah, that works. So <laughs> I, would pop out of, um, I would pop out of the virtual machine. Um, go into Notepad and physical machine, type what I needed to type, then copy and paste it back over. And there were only a few things I needed to type, so it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, <laughs> that was that was probably one of the more frustrating things. I've had the, I've had a situation, not in a demo in front of live people, but where I was like teaching. I think I was I was doing a class, and there was something wrong with the keyboard. And rather than stop, 
Uh, it was like I think it was like the letter T wasn't working, you know. Okay. <laughs> so, so I would have to go into source code and find a T and copy that and put it in the clipboard. Really and as funny. I'm typing, I'd have to do a Control V for a T. That's, That's really, awesome. really funny. <laughs> so you've worked with a bunch of the big Microsoft execs. Uh, who's the the guy who's uh, real cool on stage or good at this stuff? Like, is Bomber a, a comfortable demoer? Oh, well, you know what? Balmer, um, you know, the times that we worked with them, like particularly with that launch in 2005, he comes in very late the night before. So he doesn't really see the demo. Um, he, well, he actually doesn't see it at all until, um, until you're, you're, you're actually giving it on stage. So but how does he learn the script? Oh, sorry, now? I mean, how does he learn the script? Like, how does he, he shows up the last minute and does his thing. How does that all work? Oh well, you know when the well, you know, just thinking of the time that we worked with him for that 2005 launch, he didn't actually do any of the demo. We would, right. you know, we would do the demo, and he would just interject questions. Um, so yeah, he, that, that was all ad libbed. <laughs> just whatever, uh, whatever cut his eye, he would fire a question. <laughs> Imagine. So, wow. Okay. Um, and the general rule, um, so the lead up before like a Steve Ballmer demo, there's a lot of review with his speechwriters and stuff like that. So there's a lot of back and forth there. But one of the things you learn with you know, uh, for demoing someone like Steve Ballmer, that you know, when you ask you a question, the answer is always yes, Steve. <laughs> That's the right. only answer you ever give. <laughs> so it, it makes it easy to answer whatever question you might give you. Well, it's uh, just about that time to wrap up the show. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, Eric. Um, yeah, thank you. It was great fun talking to you guys, too. Um, look forward to hearing some feedback about your tool from our listeners. Uh, if you got any thing you could send Eric an email send us an email too and uh, that's dotnetrocksandfranklins.net and we'll see you next time dotnetrocks dotnet rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions providing professional audio audio mastering video post production and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.